Hello and welcome to the Hoover Institution's 2015 Carmel Valley Conference. I'm Chris Dower, Hoover's Director of Marketing and Strategic Communications. Our speaker in this podcast is Abbas Milani, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution and the co-director of its Iran Democracy Project. The title of his talk is ISIS, Iran, and the Future of the Middle East, and it was recorded on May 8, 2015. If the subject or the title of the uh, Professor Baskin's presentation was Cautious Optimism, I have to say that the title of my talk is uh, Uncautious Pessimism. Uh, I have to say that the news I bear is not particularly good news, um, but uh, our job is to tell the truth and uh, hopefully uh, the worst, our worst fears won't happen. Um, in all the years that I have uh, watched and studied the Middle East, I have never seen it in as much of a turmoil as today. Uh, I truly believe that it's a historic moment, uh, that a, a regime, uh, a social regime, a cultural regime, a national regime in terms of boundaries that was set up uh, around the end of the uh, First World War, uh, after the fall of the Ottoman Empire, uh, through different interventions, the Europeans, the local interventions, but the system was essentially created that has survived almost uh, a century. That system is now coming apart. Uh, that system is under an enormous amount of uh, strain. Uh, to just give you a rough sense of it, uh, at least seven, by some count, ten countries that are in that general Middle East region are what political scientists would call a failed state. A failed state is a state that the central government does not have the capacity to control its entire territory and that there is some level of violence in that country. Uh, if you look at the Middle East, start with Libya, come to Iraq, go to Afghanistan, uh, and the number of states that are either failed or failing is alarming. Uh, furthermore, you have two very powerful adversaries who are both uh, funded with oil money and are now openly vying for hegemony in the region. Saudi Arabia, with something like $700 billion in its coffers, representing the Sunni majority of uh, the Muslim world, and the Islamic Republic of Iran, although it is economically suffering, but it has 75, 80 million people. Uh, it has a very powerful military, and it has Shiites in several of these failed or failing states that could be used to further destabilize the region. So you have uh, a region that is falling apart. You have two big powers uh, who are both worried about their future uh, and both have a lot of money and both have an ideology that they're uh, supporting and they're fighting it out. You have Russia that is asserting itself more and more. You have China that is asserting itself more and more. And you have anybody who has any access to oil money in this region worried whether they're going to be able to sell their oil in future. So there is a lot of anxiety in the region. To say nothing about Iran's nuclear program, I'm not even going to talk about that. I'm going to talk about it. some of them more, what I think, fundamental uh, issues of, uh, 
of the region. And if all of this is not enough to destabilize a very potentially unstable region, uh, you have the rise of non-state actors. And of these non-state actors, none is more, in my view, dangerous, none is more well-equipped, none is more well-funded than ISIS. And I'm going to tell you why I think ISIS is a serious problem, and it is a serious problem that is going to require serious strategic thinking if it is to be controlled and curtailed. The policies that the international community has so far put in place has virtually done nothing to control, contain it. It has done very, very little to even belittle its ability. ISIS virtually controls the same amount of territory today than it did seven months ago. And in this process, the international community has organized something like 3,200 sorties against this territory that ISIS controls. They have, if, if completely one city, they have evacuated the city of Takrit, but they have taken more territory in Syria and they are about to take more territory in Iraq. So it is a very serious problem. And I'm going to try to talk about where it comes from and why it changes the strategic uh, balance and why Iran is so worried. There are two reasons why Iran is trying to negotiate a nuclear deal. One is that the sanctions are hurting. I have no doubt about it. In spite of everything they claim to the contrary, the sanctions have hurt them and they virtually have no choice but to try to end the sanctions regime. Uh, whether they will get it or not it remains to be seen, but they are hurting. Two, they look at the region and they have plenty to worry about. ISIS is more than probably anyone else after so-called infidels is interested in killing Iranian Shiites because they think they're one of the worst infidels. If you look at the map, they have laid up the future in the next 10 years, they anticipate that there won't be many countries, including Iran. And two of Iran's most important allies in the region, Iraq and Syria, are challenged by ISIS more than any other force, more effectively than any other force. So these are what Iran is looking at uh, internationally. And the Iranian regime also has to come to the negotiation has to try to lessen the sanctions because, in my view, the Iranian people are virtually up in arms against the regime they find incompetent and corrupt. The Iranian regime is one of the most corrupt in the world, according to Transparency International. It's one of the most incompetent in the world. Uh, and it is, by every measure, profoundly disliked by the people. So you have a regime armed to the teeth uh, and worried about its own base, looking at a, a landscape that is not very uh, appealing. And they're looking at Saudi Arabia that has just gone through a rather remarkable transformation and has the most assertive foreign policy I have seen Saudi Arabia have in decades. I have never seen Saudi Arabia so assertive in regional battles. I have never heard, ever, 
the king of Saudi Arabia virtually declared that we are going to contain and confront Iran directly. He just said it two, three days ago. He didn't mention Iran, but there isn't a single person in the world who heard that talk and didn't think that he was talking about Iran. So in, that's what the Iranians are looking at. That's why they need to bring down the tension. That's why I wouldn't be surprised if within the next uh, three, four months, there is a virtual embassy in Tehran, and there is a virtual Iranian embassy in Washington. I just read they was preparing to come to uh, give my talk. I just heard that uh, the United States has officially, according to one European diplomat, asked for buildings where the U.S. can have a diplomatic presence in Tehran. And the State Department has just announced that they have allowed Iranian interest section to move out of the Pakistani embassy to an, its own building. That's the first step towards the establishment of a full diplomatic presence. So if this is happening, it isn't uh, all because uh, 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 Obama is making uh, concessions or the regime is making concessions or the regime is fooling them and all of these are happening at the same time and making it more complicated, but it's because the landscape is shifting. The sand is shifting in the Middle East in really profound ways. Uh, if it is shifting in a geostrategic way, it is also shifting, but less uh, seriously, in an intellectual way. Since uh, 200 years ago, uh, Muslims began to recognize, uh, Muslims of the Middle East I'm talking about, began to recognize that in the uh, battle of ideas, in the battle with the West, they have fallen behind. It wasn't always so. If you look at the world in f 14th century, if you look at the world in 15th century, if you look at the world at the time of Shakespeare, it didn't look like the Muslims are going to be the kind of a state they're in now. The Muslims were deep in Europe. They were considered a serious threat. They were serious, considered a serious threat to the entire European continent. They had come as far as Paris at one time. They had put a siege to Vienna. They controlled virtually uh, about half of all of Europe. 200 years ago, you have the beginning of the fall of the Ottoman Empire, and you have the beginning of the Industrial Revolution and a rapid rise in the West. And Muslims essentially, in the Middle East, recognize that something has gone wrong, that the West has a model that seems to work. It's a model that is rational. It's a model that is based on reason, that is based on democracy, it's based on science, it's based on entrepreneurship. Uh, it's based on the printing press, and that if the Muslim world wants to change, it has to essentially implement some form of this model. In other words, there was a consensus that if you want to get out of the condition you're in, you have to change the way you're doing business, you have to change the way you're living your life, you have to bring more rationality, you have to bring science. In other words, some model of democracy some model of liberal democracy, some model of capitalism, market capitalism, some model of rationalism was the dominant, at least aspired to model in this region. That 
consensus is now being challenged by fundamentalist Islam. It had been challenged about 200 years ago, in fact, at that very time. At that very time, where this crisis of identity begins to emerge, a group becomes powerful in Saudi Arabia, called the Wahhabis, led by a man, Abdul Wahhab, who basically says, we don't need to fight the West, we don't need to catch up with the West, we don't need to emulate the West, we don't even need to emulate anything else that is happening in the Ottoman world or the rest of the Muslim world. We have to go to the ways of the Prophet. We have to go to the ways of the past. We have to do what the Salaf did, the Arabic world for the past. And thus you'd had the beginning of this new paradigm, this new idea, that we don't want democracy, we don't want rationalism, we don't want a system of laws, we don't want a constitution, we want to do what the Prophet did. We want to go to the ways of the past. That was a footnote to Islamic history till oil was discovered in that very region. And the alliance that was made between the Salafists of Arabia, called the Wahhabis, and the royal family, called the Saud royal family, was now suddenly funded with a lot of money. And that idea, the idea that we don't need a constitution. We can go by the Quran. The Quran says you behead someone if they commit certain crimes, you behead them. They just beheaded somebody in Saudi Arabia. They've beheaded over 40 people since the beginning of this year. Because the Quran says so, and that's the way of the Prophet. So you had this as a very small footnote. But since the Islamic Revolution in 2000, uh, 1990, uh, 1979, and since uh, the Afghanistan war, that small view has suddenly become a little more powerful. The view that we can challenge the West. We don't need to copy the West, we can challenge them. In fact, we don't, not only don't need to follow them, not only don't need to uh, emulate them, we can conquer them. The idea that Islam is a global religion advocated by this small minority now suddenly becomes a much more potentially powerful idea. So that's the intellectual context for what, is, uh, what I'm about to say. In other words, the idea that you can create a Salafist, you can create a model of governance based on the way the Prophet governed 1,300 years ago. The Prophet ruled a, a city or a couple of cities of a few thousand people at most. The idea that you can take that model and apply it, for example, to an empire of 200 million people is a remarkable idea. But that's what Salafism is out based on. That's what they uh, advocate. And the fact that they have these billions and billions and billions of dollars to promote this idea. The fact that the Saudi royal family is indebted to the Wahhabis allows them to make this uh, much more potent. Now, Wahhabism generally doesn't advocate politics. Wahhabism says, let's go back to the way of the prophet. The, the idea of fighting a jihad was not central to this whole discussion. But when Afghanistan comes, when Iranian uh, revolution comes, 
when the events post-1979 happened, when September 11 happens, the notion that, no, we can take this and politicize this idea. We don't have to just live the way the Prophet did. We can expand the way the Prophet did. How did the Prophet expand? He expanded it by the sword. He expanded it by the sword and by a very simple ideology that says there's only one God, there's one Prophet, and you have two ways to go. You accept our uh, sovereignty or we kill you, literally. And if you're a Jew or a Christian, you pay extra tax, you accept second-class citizenship, we let you continue, but you need to abide by our laws. Everyone else is an infidel. You have the choice I just told you. Accept or uh, accept the faith or be uh, killed. In that context, with this kind of idea in the background, you had, after the uh, rise of Al-Qaeda, the beginning of a new alliance, a much more dangerous alliance than the ideas I just mentioned. If the ideas I just mentioned began as apolitical ideas and gradually became political, but they were the ideas of a very small group, as a result of what was happening in Iraq and then in Syria, it has become a remarkably potent mix, now called ISIS or the Islamic State. What was that mix? First, the ideology that I just told you about, that we go back to the ways of the prophet and follow him, and uh, God has promised us the world. And if you read the literature, and I've been reading the literature, God has promised them the world. They think they will soon be flying the black flag over the White House. I'm not uh, exaggerating verbatim, I'm quoting them. They have threatened to fly the, fly the flag over the Eiffel Tower, over White House, over the Big Bend, within the next few years. Not, this is not some distant, apocalyptic future. Uh, so one idea was this notion. But then in Iraq, they began to become uh, infused with uh, the ideas that Al-Qaeda had, the terrorist group that you all know about. The terrorist group that came to Iraq and the US fought them rather uh, efficiently. And as the US began to defeat Al-Qaeda in Iraq, they decided to go to somewhere less dangerous than Iraq. The place they decided to go was Syria. And the reason they went to Syria was several fold. First, it was, there were less Marines there. Two, they began to be contacted while they were in Iraq. They began to be contacted by elements of Saddam Hussein's regime. They, were, they began to be contacted by elements of Saddam Hussein's regime, particularly for his intelligence ministry. We now have the outline that a colonel in Saddam Hussein's intelligence ministry by the name of Haji Bakr, has written. It is a virtual blueprint for what ISIS has done in the last few months. It was meticulously planned. It was meticulously planned in order to combine a state based on the promise of God with a state 
based on absolute terror modeled on Saddam Hussein's Iraq, modeled on East uh, Germany Stasi, modeled on the idea that there will be a spy at every neighborhood, modeled on the idea that we begin to infiltrate a society, you begin to send uh, cultural groups to them, and I'm again centrally quoting from this manuscript. He says, you send an innocuous group, you set up an office in a building, in a neighborhood, you begin to send in spies, you begin to find what everybody is doing, you begin to find their weaknesses, you begin to find their corruptions, and when the moment comes, you use all of this information to terrorize them, to intimidate them, or to get money from them, the way Saddam Hussein operated, exactly. That model, combined with the promise of uh, martyrdom, you kill in the name of Allah, you take women in the name of Allah as a slaves, and they're yours, you can take as many as you want, and if you die, you go to heaven directly, no uh, day of reckoning for you, and all the pleasures of heaven, as promised by Quran, are yours awaiting. Virgins, wine flowing in rivers, wines that don't give you hangover, uh, servants, uh, gold cups, uh, green uh, flowing robes, all of these things are literally uh, verbatim what is promised to the martyrs, uh, not to ladies, of course. Unfortunately, ladies have a choice of going back to their husbands or living a life of celibacy. Uh, men have all these rather uh, extensive uh, offers made to them. Uh, so you have a combination of this fervent faith, this enormous uh, state uh, terrorist system, a totalitarian system, when you look at it, it is a remarkably well-structured system where they have a spies at every level and they have a spies under spies. If you have, uh, there is a remarkable article that was, didn't get much attention in this country, I don't know why, but um, Spiegel wrote about it. Uh, and if you just Google Spiegel and ISIS, you're likely to come up with this article. Uh, Spiegel paid some money apparently to somebody to get access to some of these documents. And when you read those documents, they're frightening, but they're also very illuminating. You realize that this isn't just some crazy bunch of uh, jihadists running around. There is an infrastructure of terror behind it. There is long-term planning behind it. And these two combine with the tactics of the mafia. When you come and take over, you rule the way mafia does. You know where everybody has money, you, you know who the rich are, you abduct the children, you abduct them, you know their weaknesses. If they have a girlfriend, you know who their girlfriends are because you already had spies over there. I mean, these are all detailed in there. I'm not making all this up. And you use this. And you use Syria as a base, and then you attack back to Iraq. And now, why would Syria be a good place for them to go? One was, as I said, there were no Marines there. But there were other reasons. Saudi Arabia was beginning to get very angry at Iran for interfering in Syria. 
Iran had been sending its forces. Iran had been sending its militia into Syria to fight on behalf of Saddam and keep Saddam in power. So Saudis and the Sunnis began to worry about what they call a Shiite crescent. They said, look at the map. Iran is flexing its muscle in Bahrain. Iran is flexing its muscle in Iraq. Iran is flexing its muscle in Syria. And in the last few months, Iran is flexing its muscle in Yemen. All of this for Saudis, for the Sunnis, is a very dangerous thing. Just this morning, I read, the commander of Iranian Revolutionary Guards declared unabashedly that the Islamic Revolutionary Guards of Iran have armed and trained 200,000 Shiite militias in Iraq and in Syria. When they do it, the Saudis are going to do it. That's why the Saudis initially were very keen on having someone come to South Syria who could match up with Hezbollah. It was a proxy war. Iran had its Hezbollah there. The Saudis had their Sunni Salafi radicals, including ISIS, that was getting some initial funds from not necessarily the Saudi government, but certainly from rich Sunni in Iraq, in uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, Qatar, uh, Kuwait, and Bahrain. There was yet another reason why South, uh, Syria was a good place for them. Assad looked favorably on these most radical, most brutal, most militant group taking hold in Syria. Because Assad was very keen on telling the world that the choice is between him or someone worse than him in the form of uh, ISIS. That's why when ISIS began to take hold of territory in Syria, Syrian Air Force would never attack ISIS uh, positions. They would attack those who were fighting ISIS. One of the most fascinating things is that ISIS, when they began to expand, they took over territory in Syria. They now, incidentally, control a territory the size of England. They control a population the size of Denmark. They have access to $2 billion in cash. How they got it? Initially, they got it by uh, abduction, by selling women as slaves, by stealing uh, antiquities and selling it in the black market. Before they destroyed some of the antiquities, they sold much of it in the black market. And then they conquered oil uh, fields in Syria. And they began to sell $2 million worth of oil a day. Two questions. Who buys the oil from ISIS? And two, Syria that has absolute control over the airspace. How come Syria doesn't go after their oil fields? Syria doesn't go after the oil fields because, first of all, Syria is buying oil at $20 per barrel sometimes. Two, they want this group to have power 
because they want to tell the United States, and eventually that's what happened. Eventually, the international community said, maybe this guy is better than what is coming after it. Maybe the idea of going after Assad isn't all that great. Assad's game worked. So because of all these factors, they found a foothold in Syria. And they found money, and they found arms. And as they took over these territories in Syria, they began to have more access to arms, more access to cash, more access to monies they found from selling women and children as slaves. And then they decided for the next move, to move into Iraq. Now, Iraq was ripe for them. They had all the intelligence they needed because they were connected to the Iraqi intelligence units, the disgruntled Saddam intelligence units that were connected to this guy that I mentioned. But they had something even more important. They had the profound disgruntlement of the Sunnis of Iraq. Iraq is uh, now predom uh, about 55, 60% Shiites, 45 percent, 40 percent Sunnis. Maliki comes to power, and in spite of every effort of the United States to create a multi-faith kind of a national government in Iraq, Maliki, taking his cues from Iran, who is trying to create a client state in Iraq, begins to isolate uh, the Sunnis. By the time uh, ISIS comes to Mosul, the second largest city in Iraq. They take over Mosul, a city of two million people with less than a thousand forces. That doesn't happen unless you have fifth column inside. That doesn't happen unless you have intelligence, and it doesn't happen unless you have profound dissatisfaction in the citizenry, which is exactly what they did. And they walked into Mosul, they had 600 million dollars cash in the Central Bank of Iraq waiting for them. And they had the control of the ministries. They knew everybody's uh, net worth. They knew what everybody had. And they went after everybody, shaking them for more money. What do they do with this money? They have created a remarkable infrastructure for mobilizing people from all over the world. There are now fighters in uh, this territory, the Islamic State, from 80 countries. And they wanted, as we now learn, they wanted to bring these fighters from these different countries because that's exactly what they were looking for. Someone who doesn't speak Arabic, someone who doesn't know anything about the local politics, the local region, someone who they brainwash, and someone who they then pay to the tune of 600 to 700 dollars a month salary and say, go kill in the name of Allah. What you take is yours. The woman you take is yours. If there are Shiites, you can rape them. If there are Yazidis, you can rape them. You can take them as a slave. You can sell them as a slave. Uh, and if you die, you go to heaven and we'll take care of your family. They now have more than 30,000 of these foreign fighters from 80 different countries fighting in this war. 
Their difference with Al-Qaeda is that Al-Qaeda was essentially keen on becoming a nuisance. Al-Qaeda's theory was that we're going to inflict pain on you so that you know you have inflicted pain on us. These guys are not out to just inflict pain, although they inflict a lot of pain. And I'll tell you why they make it public. It isn't just madness. Why would they do it the way they do it? That's part of their strategy. But their strategy is not just, we're going to make you suffer. Their strategy is, we're going to hold territory, and we're going to go after territory that is lucrative. It's very much like mafia. They're not going to go and take over and fight over North Dakota territory. They're going to fight over New York. They're going to fight over Los Angeles, the territory that has money, some people they can shake down. I hope we don't have anybody from North Dakota here. I don't mean to belittle North Dakota, uh, but it's good that uh, mafia doesn't have uh, their eyes on uh, that. But mafia is after money. They go at places where there's oil, where there's antiquity, where there's population, where there is uh, water. And they hold territory. It's not like hit and run. And in that territory, they use the terror techniques that I told you about. Create absolute terror. And then publicize this terror. It isn't like they behead people. They make a movie from it. And they make a movie, a, a very polished movie, and put it online. Why? There is another book of theirs you could read online. It's called Management of Barbarity. The US military has translated it. If you read it, you understand why they put these videos online. The idea is, he says, and it's a he that has written it, it's one of their theorists. He said, we have to create chaos. And we have to create chaos by, by barbarity. We have to, the, he says, the crusaders, which is everybody other than them, have been inflicting a barbarous war against us. We have to out-violence uh, them. Because if we out-violence them, we will... Uh, so their theory in this management of barbarity is that uh, you create chaos and you bring fear to their hearts. You bring fear to the hearts of the Westerners. Because if we bring fear to their hearts, we can defeat them more efficiently. And then they use this in order to mobilize more people. And they use this to gradually now, gradually, we might be in the process. We might be in the process of seeing a new stage in their tactics. So far, the violence they have uh, inflicted has been localized. People they have beheaded. People they have beheaded and they have uh, put their video online. In the last issue of their journal, and again, if you want to lose the sleep, go online and read their journal. They have a very colorful, very well-polished journal that they publish, and it is called Dabek, D-A-B-E-Q. It's in English. It's in Arabic, it's in French, it's in Urdu, it's in Russia. Uh, they put out tweets in 24 different languages. 
They sometimes put out as many as 40,000 tweets a day with their hashtag. They use a remarkable network to connect to people all across the world. And then read uh, what the head of the FBI just said. The head of the FBI just said, if you rem the, the people who went to Texas, they went from Phoenix. The FBI had some clues about them, and then they basically disappear. They make the connection at the social network level. They put on these videos. The minute they see you have interest, they tag you. They begin to mob follow you, and then they bring you in. Now, when Al-Qaeda wanted to bring somebody in, Al-Qaeda knew that the FBI, the CIA, the French, the British, everybody is trying to infiltrate them. So the idea of bringing someone into Al-Qaeda was a very long, lengthy process. They put you in through many, 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 many uh, stages of tests to make sure you're not an intelligence officer. And sometimes they have missed. We now know some British intelligence officer was very close to the leadership of uh, ISIS, for example, and then he, uh, succeeded to escape. These guys have decided on a different strategy. One path is the Al-Qaeda path. They pick on you, they decide you're the right person, then they invite you to uh, usually Turkey, uh, Syria, and then they manage to bring you in and you become a soldier. And once you enter the territory, you no longer have the right to leave because you now have become a citizen of this uh, caliphate. But in recent months, they have begun a, a new strategy of barbarity, what they call barbarity. What happened in Paris, what happened in Denmark, what happened in Texas, uh, are part, in my view, of a pattern. And you can actually see it in their own literature. If you read Dabek, this is what they say. In Dabek, in the most recent issue of Dabek, it says, brothers, ask us, and I'll tell you what their program is for sisters. They call men brothers and women sisters. It says, brothers keep asking us, we want to come to uh, the uh, caliphate and fight. We say, fine, we'll bring you in time. We can't bring everybody. But you don't have to come here to engage jihad. If you want to get in, get jihad, just go out in your neighborhood, kill anybody you find. I mean, I'm quoting verbatim. If you're trying to create chaos, that's a strategy that works. Professor Waskin was talking about what would happen if two surface-to-air missiles go up and bring down two uh, airlines. What would happen if you, have, if you had, in France, five copycat events, like the one that happened at Charlie Hebdo? What would have happened to the fabric of uh, French society? What would have happened to the millions of French uh, people who live with, next to Muslims? What would have happened to interfaith uh, relations? And if you say the relations would have deteriorated, if you say uh, that French would have become distrustful of the Muslims, that's exactly what they want. That's chaos. That's showing that the Crusaders don't have the well 
interest, the interest of uh, the Muslims at heart. The more you control here, the more they advertise, the more they use the advertisement to essentially uh, tell their supporters that uh, uh, what they have been telling, that the West is on a crusade and that the only way is to uh, pay homage uh, to them. Uh, so what you have is a very, in my view, potent mix. A potent mix that uh, was created in some ways uh, inadvertently. I don't think Saudi Arabia ever imagined that fighting uh, Iranian militia or Iranian-backed militia in Syria with a group of Sunni radicals would eventually beget something like ISIS, who now wants to go after Saudi Arabia itself. In the last few months, Saudi Arabia has arrested a number of people in Saudi Arabia uh, under charge of uh, being a member of the ISIS. Uh, I said what they do to brothers is bring them there, give them uh, 60, uh, 600 to 700, the most democratic Muslim country in the world today, the two most democratic Muslim countries in the world, Turkey and Tunisia, are two of the countries that have supplied the largest number. Tunisia is the country that has supplied the largest number of fighters to ISIS. Why? Because there is disgruntlement, unemployment, uh, disillusionment with everything amongst the people. You have 30-40% unemployment in some of the Muslim ghettos in uh, Europe. You have unemployment more than that in places like Egypt, in places like Chechnya, in places like Pakistan. Uh, they become absolute foot soldiers. And they offer this combination of uh, macho, jihadist, uh, mafia uh, potent mix with a lot of internet savvy. How they're going to be dislodged from the territories that they now control is going to be very, very difficult. Iran looks at this and sees a rising threat. Iran sees, sees this as essentially part of Saudi Arabia's challenge to them. That's why they need to bring down the level of tension with the United States. That's why they basically are telling the United States in so many words, directly and indirectly, that the only people who can fight these are us. So make your peace with us and let us do the fighting for ISIS. I'm not sure that that is going to happen the way they envisioned, uh, but I think I should uh, Stop for some questions. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.